Welcome back, everyone, to Season 5 of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast. This is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we're so glad to have you back with us again, or perhaps here for the first time. For those of you joining us the first time, the purpose of this podcast is to learn about the lives and inspiring stories of those in the Notre Dame family, especially how they have found their life's purpose and vocation, some of the critical moments along the way, and how they have learned to strive after living a holy life. I know that I have been so edified by the many stories we have shared so far, and I cannot wait to offer more wonderful stories this season. So to kick us off, we have someone well-known to many in the Notre Dame family, and I'm excited to bring him on the podcast. Steve Camilleri is a 94 graduate of the university, as well as got his Master's of Science Administration in 2001, and he now serves as the Executive Director of the Center for the Homeless nearby campus in South Bend. So, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Dan, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I got to tell you, Dan, um, you know, you are just one of uh, my wife and I, our favorite people. And Erin tells a story when she was working for Summer Experience and she was pregnant with her daughter, Isabel. And you were interviewing to be one of the counselors. And she had had a long day and met with a lot of people. And you took the time to congratulate her on her pregnancy and ask her how she was doing. And she just was so touched by how comfortable you were talking to her and acknowledging her pregnancy. And it, it meant the world to her. And it's something uh, we always think of when we think about you. So it's really neat to, to be here now. You know, Isabel's 16. So oh 16 gosh, years yeah. later. And you were one of the best counselors that program ever had. <laughs> and you did it more than once. So, so thanks, Dan, for having it's me. It's great to bring that personal side to it and, and come full circle. And I actually, yeah, I knew your wife, Erin, before I knew you, but then came to know you and your you know great impact on the university and have really uh, been inspired by what you have done for the community since then, since I kind of moved from being a student here to being a member of the community. So yeah. a real privilege for, for me as well to have you on the well, podcast. It, it's great to hang out here today. Thanks. Absolutely. So we like to begin with the beginning. So your childhood, <laughs> it's a good place to start, right? Uh, your childhood and upbringing, where are you from? What were some of those important moments in your childhood? Yeah, you know, I grew up, uh, some people know from the history books, in a place called Levittown, New York, mm -hmm. which is on Long Island. And uh, my parents moved from the city. My mother lived in Brooklyn. She grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my dad grew up in Astoria. And uh, in 1971, they moved to Levittown, and I was born in 72. You know, we talked a little bit uh, earlier about surprises, and boy, there are a lot of surprises in everyone's vocation journey. But what, what I, I think you might not know about me, um, and it is at the very beginning, was that I was born with spina bifida. Hmm. And it really carries my story and kind of what's driven me to have the opportunity to do some of the things I've done that I know other people who were born with spina bifida haven't been able to. And so uh, at some point, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. But that's like the very beginning, this little boy who grew up with two older sisters, one was five years older, one was seven years older, grows up in, in Levittown, New York, and uh, becomes a first generation college student hmm. uh, from his family. So yeah, remarkable. A lot of good things to dive in there. In terms of the faith, the deposit of faith, who gave that to you, and how did that become important to you as yeah. a kid? Uh, you know, certainly um, growing up in a, a very Catholic household. I mean, this is, if you will, sort of the typical my mother, the Italian Sicilian mother uh, with her parents, uh, my grandparents, um, very, very faith-filled. 
Uh, my dad's side of the family uh, from Malta, Maltese American, also very deeply rooted in faith. My grandmother lived with us for 30 years, mm. uh, a faith-seeking woman. So it was it was just in our family. Um, it was something that was just part of all of our experiences. And I, you know, I went to Catholic grade school um, from first grade on through high school, uh, of course, then through through Notre Dame, and then through grad school here at the university. So it was it was always an important part of my life. But it it was it was actually all of our lives. Just that that's what you did. You just you grew up around the faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's such a gift when you realize it's baked into your existence, and not everybody has that gift in terms of their upbringing. So I like that thought. Like it's baked into your existence. <laughs> it was just it was just it was just who we were, and. Uh, it, it was all aspects of our life and just, I mean, my mother's still now to this day, you know, my dad's passed away, but 79 years old and just every card she writes talks about keeping you in prayers, how Jesus has blessed you to use your gifts and every phone conversation, you know, we'll, we'll pray together and it's just, um, it's, so it's still there. And so, so really my mother ends up becoming just this incredible faith model in my life mm-hmm. as, as many people's parents are, they're, you know, first teachers, you know? Yep. Absolutely. That's that's definitely part of that vocation as as a parent. So this discovery of spina bifida or kind of making sense of that, can you give us some insight into what that was like as a kid? Yeah. Maybe your own challenges that you encountered and how you overcame some of those? Yeah, sure. You know, one of the things, um, and I get, I get chills thinking about it, is, you know, Roe v. Wade was um, happening, of course, around that time. And right. Just, just the idea that... Uh, you know, my parents brought me into this world, yeah. knowing potentially some of the challenges I would have. And of course, then being born and having a literal hole in my back with the nerves exposed and, you know, asking my parents, like, do you want to have a surgery or not? Which at the time, we're in the early 70s here, which could be really risky. They didn't know as much about spina bifida as they know now. And mm-hmm. of course, choosing to have that surgery, which closes the hole at the base of my spine. I imagine now as a parent myself of two children, what it must have been like for my parents to see me walk for the first time. Yeah. You know, so I was in the hospital for about the first three or four months of my life, backside up, um, you know, wasn't able to be held, wasn't able to be hugged, wasn't able to be breastfed. And I kind of joke, I was actually born on what now January 21st is considered National Hug Day. And uh, you know me, Dan, you know, I'm a hugger. And uh, of course, not during COVID. But um, so I thought it was a little bit ironic that I wasn't hugged the first four months of my life. And I just maybe that's why I love to hug people so much and uh, making up for lost time. (laughs) Making up for lost time. So um, but, you know, beyond these moments that must have been spectacular for my parents to, to see their child walk, but then to see me run and play sports and I was very involved athletically uh, particularly you know baseball and karate and wrestling and all these sports um had to stop wrestling because it wasn't good for my back but the the one thing though I, I did get made fun of quite a bit mm-hmm. I, I did get made, made fun of quite a bit um we're just kids who just didn't understand um, my, my body and my gait and my walk and some of those struggles and, and I kind of laughed them off and uh, and and it be came a point of pride um, for me and amongst my friends that the, the things I was able to do, I was really driven to do. And I would end up running through grade school and through high school and, you know, still to this day doing triathlon and some fun things. So it's it, it's stayed with me. But uh, I just, um, yeah, I think these are the stories as children 
kind of follow us through and, and really strengthen us and build character. Yeah, there is something about why does God permit suffering? And sometimes we never know it, this side of heaven, but other times we can see that how much that shaped you and, and drove your life. And I mean, what a beautiful witness of your parents and a, a really difficult time. And those of us who have, you know, had children and been in the ultrasound room and you just feel that nervousness of could something be amiss? And, and if you get word that it is, you know, to have that strength and moral fortitude to say, we're going to accept what comes and we're going to continue to love this person and see what God's grace can do. And, and you know, it's wonderful to see that, how that's happened in your life. Yeah, and I certainly, like, I can't imagine what it must have been like for my parents, but I do know when, when Isabel and Michael were, and we had these ultrasounds and, and you know, we didn't, you know, Aaron was taking more folic acid and, we, you know, we didn't know would, would our children also be born right. with spina bifida. Right. And, uh, boy, we'd love them just the same. Sure. And uh, which, of course, is what my parents did. Um, you know, and in terms of suffering, you know, for me, I never felt like I did. I think I was just naive to it. It was just, it was who I was. It was in the fiber of my being that, well, just, you know, I have one leg that doesn't look like everybody else's leg, mm-hmm. and um, I'm not as fast as everybody else. And I have this huge scar on my back when you know I go to the pool, you know, because I swam a little bit. Sure. But I, I never really let it bother me. But I've met some people. Um, in fact, we a few years ago, I felt very connected to a woman who uh, lived at the Center for the Homeless, who was in a wheelchair, and I felt comfortable asking her what brought her into the wheelchair, and it was spina bifida. Hmm. And she was just a couple years older than me, and I, you know, we just had an instant connection. And she took no um, resentment in the fact that I was also born with spina bifida and wasn't in a wheelchair, and I treated her as normal as I would treat everybody else. I mean, she might have been one of my favorites, but, um, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, I, I, when, I, when I, and her name was Denise, when I looked at Denise, which happens to be my sister's name, um, I felt, um, boy, I, I wonder if, if she had suffered a lot, and obviously she came into the experience with homelessness, but um, I never really felt like I suffered. I, in fact, I felt, I feel really blessed for all I've been able to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very inspiring. So eventually you progressed through high school and your activities, and that Led you to Notre Dame. How did that decision come about? And yeah, no, it's kind of funny. It's you know you use the word progress through high school. Some some of us, uh, high school's a, a, a tough time, right? Yeah. For a lot of reasons, and and whether that's socially or academically or emotionally or mentally, um, it just um, it was you know I was at an all boy high school and uh, you know an all boy high school on Long Island and a, a rigorous academic schedule. Um, but I didn't know a lot about college because, again, nobody in my family had gone. And even though we were a college preparatory school, it was hard for me to imagine what that experience would be like. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, it was one of my very best friends who told me about the University of Notre Dame. And, and uh, you know, so I'm in high school in the mid-'80s, and, of course, um, you know, people would know – you know, fans of the football and that being from New York, you know, a lot of a lot of fans out there. Right. But I really didn't fully know what to expect. But when my friend told me about it, I thought, well, I'll I'll, I'll certainly look into it. But all the schools I was applying to were on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but for the one school in South Bend, Indiana, which was the last school I found out I got into because I was ready, you know, ready to uh, go to a 
potentially somewhere else. And, uh, and it was the last one I found out about, which was really exciting. And there's some fun stories there, you know, visiting campus. But in high school, though, I was involved in um, teaching. I was, there was a prep program, Parish Religious Education Program. So mm-hmm. I was teaching uh, religion classes to a school um, right next to my high school. And so it was like starting to get a taste for it. I was very involved in our sodality uh, group at school. And, you know, we, it was the Marianist community. So there was devotion to Mary. And so in, in a lot of ways, it made sense to be at the University of Notre Dame of Our Lady and the devotion to Mary. And I just felt like this, this was really a right fit. And the things I had been part of in high school and being a daily communicant in mm-hmm, high school mm-hmm. and being an altar boy and, and very seriously considering a vocation to religious life at the time to the brother, to becoming a, a Marianist brother. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it just seems like Notre Dame at that time in my life was a natural progression yeah. to the things I was seeking out. Yeah. How did you flourish while you were a student here and then kind of make sense of your vocation as, as you were discerning it. Uh, Dan, I'm laughing because the, anybody who would know me would not use the word flourish. <laughs> it's certainly not academically during my time here. Maybe socially. I, I just soaked up every experience I, I had at the university. Um, and, and, and I think there were times where I forgot I was here for the academics and, <laughs> and needed to be reminded of that. But um, I, I think I flourished as, as a whole person. I started to become comfortable with who I was and the things I might have been called to do and and the things I was involved in. I was involved in everything from being a student manager for sports teams and being out there at at football games and, you know, holding uh, the nets for field goals and and all these sorts of cool experiences to working in Washington Hall and building sets for for the theater Mm -hmm. programs Mm -hmm. and to being part of, uh, you know, the dorm teams, whether it was the baseball team or the lacrosse team. So it was this, like, just there were so many opportunities. But where I felt most at home was my experiences with the Center for Social Concerns, with my experiences with campus ministry. And that seemed to define my time at Notre Dame more than any other, whether it was through the Notre Dame Encounters, um, the retreat programs, Mm -hmm. whether it was through urban plunges uh, and volunteer service on campus, that that's where I felt most at home. I loved being a student manager. I loved working at Washington Hall. I loved working at the dining hall, but I, I felt at home at the CSC. I felt at home in campus ministry. And as you think back, were there people along the way that kind of confirmed that for you and prompted you even to explore that even more, you know, something that would lead to you to do, you know, in your current line of work. Boy, there, there were. I mean, in, in one sense, there's there's too many to name when I think of my journey. Sure. But um, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say Padre Don McNeil, mm-hmm. who I was fortunate enough to take a class from. Mm-hmm. Um, and through him, getting to know uh, great people and authors uh, and priests like Father Henry Nowen, getting to know uh, Father Warner, who was in charge of campus ministry and interviewed me to be in the Alliance for Catholic Education program, along with Sister Sue Bruno. Um, (laughs) So there were so many wonderful lights in my journey. Um, My rector uh, just was amazing, Father Levier, who was an amazing storyteller and homilist. Um, And, you know, financially, it was really difficult Mm -hmm. for me to get through the university. And and, um, boy... (laughs) You know, Father Levier helped, and he 
just was there for me and nominated me for some scholarships. And uh, my dear friend, Gene Pulowski, who was in financial aid, if, if not for Gene, I don't know that I would have been able to finish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so happy that you did. And, and as we'll find out, continued to give back to the university in a lot of ways. Uh, we've talked about your wife, Erin. I'd like to explore that a bit. When did you meet and how did that relationship flourish? Oh, boy, it's funny. <laughs> People who know us are like, oh, you know, you guys met in undergrad. And we both have the same response. Had we met in undergrad, we would probably not be married. <laughs> we, <laughs> we met. Um, so Aaron was class of 97. I was class of 94. And even though Aaron was a first-year student when I was a senior, and she lived in Marine Phillips and I lived in Kavanaugh, we never formally met, okay. though apparently we were together at, or, or we were in the same section for one SYR. Okay. And I was the, the RA of that section, <laughs> and, and she was with one of the great guys who lived down the hall. And, um, you know, my senior year at Kavanaugh, it was the last year that Kavanaugh w- would, would, would be a male dorm. And so um, perhaps uh, <laughs> we, we took some liberties that we ought not have. <laughs> and um, so I think Aaron uh, tells the story, you know, some now 20 years later that, boy, that SYR that year, I wondered who the RA was, and I ended up marrying him. So um, Aaron was, you know, studied theology as an undergrad, mm-hmm. and then went on to pursue her MDiv here. Mm-hmm. And so when, you know, she took a year between to do the Holy Cross Associate Program, and Coincidentally, she was placed in a, a great agency in Colorado Springs that assisted people experiencing homelessness. And then she would come back in 98 to do the MDiv. And at that time, I'm already back at the university working in the development department and working uh, as a director of ministries at the Basilica. And so we, we had a, a, a great group. Boy, we had some wonderful, wonderful friends at the time, some of whom are still here and many who have moved on. And we just had a mutual friend group. And... Um, Really grateful to the friends that introduced us. I think of my roommate, my roommate Frank, and and his wife Colleen. I'm ever grateful to my friend Dana Dillon. There was just, you know, we had mutual friends that introduced us, and and we hit it off. And then I was like, well, you know, I love the university. I'm here, and Aaron was graduating in '01, and I was graduating from the nonprofit program. But um, there were opportunities here for me, and then opportunities for Aaron, as we know, in pre-college programs. Mm-hmm. So we were both able to stay here and just absolutely love the university and uh, fell in love with South Bend and the community. And, and I've lived here now many, many more years than I lived in Long Island, right. which is, uh, you know, it's always just strange to me. I'm much more of a Hoosier than a New Yorker, but um, there's still a bit of New York in me. Yeah, when you, when you cross that chronological threshold, it's always a moment of like, oh my gosh, like I've been here for a long time. Exactly right. <laughs> and then when you realize your children are 15 and 16 and They've, they've been Hoosiers their whole life, and right. they've, they've known nothing else. It is. <laughs> it's the power of Our Lady's University. That's that right. Sometimes. Amen. Um, so this progressed to marriage. Any lessons of marriage and fatherhood over the years that have really stuck with you, either inspiring models that you've seen in others and just, you know, things you've adopted yourself? I, you know, I, <laughs> I'll be hesitant to give marriage lessons because it's, uh, <laughs> no, l- let me first say this. When I started down at the Center for the Homeless, which was August 2004, okay. our daughter Isabel was born July 4th, 2004. And, I, you know, I remember I was leaving the university after eight years and oh, I loved I love Notre Dame, and I loved having the opportunity and privilege to be an employee of the university. Uh, but I felt called to go down to the center. But it just seemed like, ooh, this is a crazy time to do it. You're about, you know, 
become a first-time parent, mm-hmm. start a new job that, to some extent, did I did I know how to run a, a homeless facility? No. Did I know how to be a dad? No. <laughs> and I, I tell folks, like, I, but what I did know was, boy, I, I, I need to love all the guests uh, who are the residents at the Center for the mm-hmm, Homeless. Mm-hmm. And I know I need to love my daughter. And I have felt that now, seven, 16 and a half, 17 years later, I still don't know what it's like to be a dad to a teenager, and I still wonder if I know how to run the center, but I do know that I still need to love tremendously mm-hmm. my daughter and her journey and um, the folks at the center, and that applies to marriage as well. Coming up on 20 years of marriage here. Wonderful. In September 01, and it's, it's still about love and being partners and communication and just, you know, getting through the good and the bad days. Yep. But but really communicating through those days and sharing experiences and one of the things I struggled with early on, both early on as a as a whether it was a, a high school student or a college student or as a young adult professional, um, I struggled with sharing my vulnerability mm-hmm. and sharing my weakness and I've often often pray the litany of humility and wow praying that. The, the God's response to it has been y- yes, and and I have been humbled, and I have um, shared my weaknesses and shared my vulnerabilities, and it was scary, and it opened up some amazing relationships, and it strengthened my relationship with Aaron. It strengthened my relationship with my family, with my friends, um, and I'm willing to talk to anybody who will listen about that. You know, when my dad passed away six years ago... Um, I sought out counseling after, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it was something when I was growing up, you didn't do. Right. You know, like right. f- 40 years ago, if you had a struggle, at least in my family, you didn't, you didn't talk to someone about it. And it was just very um, life-affirming to, to talk to a counselor. And of course, you know, at the Center for Homeless, what we do, we tell people, talk to people. And so that was really um, a struggle for me to do. But once I did, and once I shared those vulnerabilities and weaknesses, I just think it, it strengthened all of my relationships, mm-hmm. and particularly uh, marriage. Yeah. Well, and that's really the beauty, I think, of a, of a lifelong marriage is you see warts and all, both sides, and yet I'm still here, you know, yeah. and my wife's still here. I mean, the, in that context that there's a fidelity despite all that. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's a fear that, well, if I let you all the way in, then you'll leave or you'll run away. And yet the vows... You know, they stick. Yeah. They mean something, and it's thick and thin. And Absolutely. And, you know, for me growing up, my parents were separated for a few years. Hmm. Um, and so, you, you you know, when that narrative is in your head, you think, as you just so eloquently said, Dan, like, if I share my warts and all, if I take off my mask, what is this person really going to think? And, and what I found was almost just the opposite. There was even more love flowing hmm. into our relationship and, again, flowing into all of my relationships. Yeah. And people... When, when I shared my vulnerabilities, I found that other people, some might have had the same vulnerabilities or they felt comfortable sharing theirs. And it, it took relationships, if you will, from the surface to a much deeper level. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just, it's, um, you know, it's something I still try to do. I try to go, you know, get to that deepness in a relationship. Maybe, maybe sometimes quicker <laughs> than I should. <laughs> sometimes I assume a fam- familiarity that's not there, and and then I lean on and say, "Well, you know, I'm a blunt New Yorker." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, I want to get to know people. Right. I want to really know um, 
beyond just, again, some of these superficial questions, let's really get to know each other. And, and I have found mostly people respond just beautifully mm-hmm. um, and lovingly, both to me and to in their sharing of the stories and journeys they've had. Yeah, and I'm, I will get into your ministry at the Center for the Homeless, but I'm sure that that helps you there because when you're experiencing homelessness, there's not many masks left. Or, you know, there's just, this is, I'm here, and I don't have much else to you give, so. It. You said it. I mean, the, the mask is off. Mm-hmm. It's it's just, I mean, you know, there's the literal sense that I come in with sometimes just a shirt on my back. Right. And then there is the, you know, the sense of just as a, as a person, I'm giving you my all. This is who I am, and I've had this experience with homelessness. And, you know, a lot of times I think, you know, when we think in terms of the Eucharist, and again, to, to Henry Nouwen talking about the Eucharist and being blessed, broken, and given, and this idea of in our brokenness, we th- through our brokenness, we are able to be given. Mm-hmm. And the people I've met at the center who experience brokenness are able to both give and receive. I've often struggled with receiving, mm-hmm. and I often struggle with asking for help. And my experience at the center has really allowed me to grow in those areas where I'm, I'm more comfortable asking for help. Because we tell people all the time, it's okay to ask for help. That's why we're here. I've had to. Re- that's been like one of my biggest transformations at the center has been again this openness of asking for help from yeah. my own self and taking off the mask. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you said it though that you know the the people I've met there, they come to us as they are, and they this is who I am, and I just I love the people I've met, and now it's thousands over sixteen years, and that's kind of the common thread: the, the brokenness, or if you will, the profound disconnectedness, and then the allowing of me to share that. You know, and I for boy, you know, of course now COVID, but pre-COVID, I. And I say taught a class, but I think it was just, I was part of a class that was letting go. That was the title. It was letting go. And we shared our journeys together. And, oh, man, I mean, just about every class, the box of Kleenex was out. <laughs> and the first couple of years I, ta- I, again, taught or facilitated it, I wasn't comfortable sharing what I needed to let go of. Yeah. And then, again, my dad passed away six years ago. After that, I became much more comfortable sharing what I needed to let go of. And it just, I, I felt even a deeper connection with the guests. And I think maybe they felt a deeper connection with me. And a lot of that class was rooted on Peter and Judas. Hmm. And we talk about Judas and when he betrayed and then he hung himself. And then we talk about Peter and when Peter betrayed, he asked for forgiveness. Yeah. And he wept. And so we use that as the basis that you know, and boy, the experience of homelessness, I don't personally know it, but I know through people I've met how difficult it must be. Those people continue to hold on. And when I say hold on, meaning their life, they're holding on to their life and they're letting go of the baggage. Again, we think of the mission and the beautiful scene in the mission where, you know, played by De Niro, climbing and scaling the wall and then talking to the priest played by Jeremy Irons saying, well, he, he isn't ready to forgive himself. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about forgiveness. And when are we ready to let go? The folks I've met who've entered into their experience with homelessness, they, they now will embrace that and accept it. And now let's move out of that experience. Mm-hmm. Let's move out of that experience. Um, and so it's, uh, it's been pretty powerful to use Peter as a model, who's been a model of my life in terms of the many, many times I've betrayed Jesus and others in that 
but you know to weep and to not give up and just to to continue to turn to Jesus and my you know turn to Jesus for forgiveness and in forgiving others and forgiving myself yeah it's it's always hard sometimes to take our own advice oh, we, we, know, we know that that's the good thing you know, we've even seen people show us the steps but sometimes when we're in that pit it's hard not to despair at times and you know I find inspiration in a lot of people like the guests at the center because they've been in an even deeper pit than I have and yet they're still persevering so well, we'll get into that I do want to backtrack because you've been a part of some really important programs in in the recent history of Notre Dame both the ACE program and Notre Dame Vision. So could you share some of your roles in both of those programs and, and what was life-giving about both? Well, yeah, sure. I, I guess if we're doing chronology, I'll do. Uh, I'll talk about the Alliance for Catholic Education, the ACE program, um, where, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, my best friends in the world uh, have been met from, and we went through a journey together because we were the first year of the program. Yeah. And, I, and, and so I think that's kind of the, the definition is there was this program for, at the time, imagine it's 1993, November of 93, and you're a senior at the university and uh, you've studied marketing and, psych, you know, marketing and sociology and you're applying for jobs. And um, at just some moment, you decide to go to that Center for Social Concerns uh, fair, the, the sort of career fair, graduation fair, and you see the sign that says, tired of having homework, then give some. <laughs> so, boy, <laughs> that, that speaks to me. And uh, let's check this out. And then, of course, lo and behold, um, you know, I would apply for the Alliance for Catholic Education, and I earlier mentioned just so grateful that uh, Sister Sue Bruno and Father Warner interviewed me and said yes, because mm-hmm. uh, I didn't think that interview went so well. Um <laughs> But then to, uh, I remember um, just saying yes on, um, at, the, at the Easter vigil. Like that was okay. when I had made the decision to do the ACE program. And uh, it just, it, it changed my life. It, you know, and by the way, at, the, at that time, I was thinking it was maybe a year program. And then we found out it was a two-year program with a master's degree from the University of Portland. Um, and I was placed in Hammond, Louisiana at Holy Ghost School, which is, just a special place on this planet. Some of the best people I've ever met live in Hammond, Louisiana. And, and now interesting, you know, I'm 49 years old and the students I taught are now in their late 30s and I've, I know them as adults and I've gotten to meet their families and I, I try to go back to Louisiana again, barring COVID about every year. Some of the teachers down there are uh, also some of my closest friends. So it was very formative for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think just being part of that first year and being pioneers of the programs was just a really neat experience. And I've been really blessed to be back, um, you know, when I was back on campus for eight years and now being in the community, to be part of the ACE Selection Committee for m- many of the last 25 years and uh, to have opportunities to share a little bit of some of the stories when I was an ACE to, uh, you know, future ACE teachers and I just, uh, it's been an incredible part of my journey. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly bolstered Catholic education across this country. It's amazing to see 
what the program has become. And so I yeah. guess I guess you did well enough that they wanted to you know keep it going. <laughs> well, you know, you say that, Dan, but the fact of the matter is our site no longer exists. <laughs> I was down there for two years, and those are the only two years of the site. So I, I, I would challenge that premise. But no, certainly ACE has grown, expanded, deeply impacted Catholic education in our country and beyond. We've seen some some great programs that ACE has set up around the world. Um, just re- really a program. But, but at the end of the day, when you think of each individual, both in ACE, on the team of ACE, and those students, and I think of each individual student, and then you think of the thousands and thousands of students that that has impacted because of the Alliance for Catholic Education. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, 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 just the ways in which the, these great people who go on to teach and give two years of their life, oh, what a difference, what a difference that they're making. And then you see now these former ACE students, you know, some of them attend the University of Notre Dame, some of them become teachers themselves, and, and they are deeply rooted in their faith life. It's a, I, I just feel really fortunate to have been part of it. Yeah, it's a wonderful legacy yeah. that continues. And something else that has touched thousands of people, young people, especially as they just, they're discerning their vocation, is Notre Dame Vision. Yeah. How did that come about? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Vision. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, we think of former things. When I think of ND Vision, and I, you know, I don't know if any of our friends to the program listen, uh, you know, or will, but I laugh. And, and I say that because I think they're laughing, too, because we had so much fun in the creation in the early years. And how did it come about? The Lilly Endowment down in Indianapolis granted the university a $50,000 seed grant. And from that seed grant, you were applying for a $2 million grant for four years to explore vocation on campuses. And mm-hmm. Notre Dame was part of that initial group. So you know we got the $2 million. Yeah. And I just had uh, the, the wonderful pleasure to, to, get to, um, to get to know the likes of... Um, and, and may she rest in peace, Jan Poorman, yes. who was incredibly formative in the um, curriculum for both the college mentors for ACE and for the high school students. So I just, um, I'll never forget the blessing. It was to me to be able to sit alongside Jan at her computer yeah. and just listen to her and learn hmm. from her. So never forget it. Had a chance to work alongside Father Poorman, uh, John Cavadini, just some wonderful people who helped form what this program would be. Mm-hmm. And then the, the students who were part of it, both the, the college students and the high school students, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> you know, I guess what I'd say is I had the passion for it, and I was able to champion it um, nationally when I went to all these conferences I, that I had no business being at, right? Like, <laughs> I, I felt like, a, you know, the imposter syndrome right. where, was I really a youth minister? Like, I was just trying to get a grant, but I was learning from everyone around the country and met some wonderful people who are ministers and, and have become dear friends uh, like Ma- Mike Patan, who's been speaking for 20 years at Indy Vision. My dear friend, Dobie Moser, Charles Jumaville, these Steph Kluot, folks who were doing ministry and they invited me into this experience. And then uh, I learned a lot about it. And then we, um, you know, and I, I just think of just some great friends like Adam Cronk and Lenny DiLorenzo, Andrew Hoy, who were leaders and formative in this program. I know you had Danielle Rose on, mm-hmm. um, and I'm so inspired by her story, and she just shared her gift, and, and just many, many others. I just, I almost, um, there's so many that I'd want to mention, and 
my, my colleague, Nicole Sherilla and Sheila, and just so many great people who were formative. So for me, it was just uh, <laughs> kind of getting away get, or getting out of the way of some of these great faith-filled people and then just functioning more as administrator, like mm-hmm. administer the program mm-hmm. and uh, let it happen and, and be excited and passionate about it. Because when we first started, um, we this first summer we were going to do it, and um, I think it was like you know, going to be like a couple hundred bucks to come out. And all the college, which were called Mentors in Faith, they were in a class, again, that was taught by Jan. Yeah. And I remember showing up on that class in April. Now, we're going to launch in, in June. Okay. And... I remember going to that class and being like, we have some good news and bad news. And I love, you know, Lenny DiLorenzo, uh, Dr. DiLorenzo retells the story, makes me laugh every time <laughs> when he does the imperson- impersonation of me. But it's like, yeah, I remember you came in that classroom and you're like, we have good news and bad news. And the good news is we've, uh, we've tripled our enrollment. The bad news is we previously had one person enrolled. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to three and it was April. And then so that first summer, we decided to offer it for free. Okay. And uh, and people showed up yeah. and they did and then and then we, we clearly knew we, we had something special here and I think we're twenty two or twenty three years later I think nearly fifteen thousand students and, and let me say this Dan um it, the neatest experience for me was when my daughter attended ND yeah. which was a couple yeah. summers ago she really wanted to go last summer obviously COVID right. but it was um that was really special for me that she went through it of her own volition. It yeah. wasn't something we didn't want to push, and, and she had a wonderful experience. And and it was neat for me to go to some of those sessions then yeah. that parents get invited to. Yeah. It's pretty special. Comes full circle. Yeah, and, it sure did. I mean, here you were giving a gift to your daughter who didn't even exist yet, and little did you know how God's grace could interact yeah. with, you, with your willingness. It was a gift indeed. Well, and I also think about, I love in the summer times when I've been here, you walk around and you see you know, the posters and the t-shirts and it's like all the saints, you know, all the saints yeah. and their stories. And But what's been fun about this podcast and, and hearing people's stories is we're still in this life, so we're not saints yet. But when you look around, we've often been privileged to be surrounded by people. Uh, I mean, yeah, you mentioned Jan and she was a special person in my life as well. And had the, having the chance to go to her funeral and just thinking about, oh my gosh, the, the amount of impact that one holy person oh, can have yeah. is, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to fathom. And it's a real blessing to look around and see how we've been surrounded by those people. Absolutely. I just, yeah, no, you know, Dan, you're, you're physically seeing me get choked up here. Um, and certainly, you know, Jan just did it with, um, in, in what I would say in this quiet way, but yet so strong. And just to, to, to see how she led. And so, yeah, it was a huge impact on my life. And, you know, and sometimes it's in the folks that we least expect. Mm-hmm. And for me, because I had the opportunity to do this program, and uh, Father Porman was kind enough to let me use his office in DCO at the time, one of the people who really inspired me was the person who had been the janitor at DCO. Mm. And he would leave me notes, and they were scripture passages. And then on those notes, he would he would write a note, and he would always say uh, he would always ask, "How are you doing, my friend?" And he would say, "I am wonderfully well, wishing you a jolly day." And then he would then he would have his own reference to Jesus and ask that Jesus be part of my life. And I got to know Jeffrey, and I found him to be one of my models. And again, we, we find 
in, in, in for me, it was in one of the most ex- unexpected places, and I had learned that his son was murdered. And I, I, I couldn't understand how someone who had been through so much suffering sure. would be so happy and so holy and would be able to share that so what appeared to me easily with others. So when I left Notre Dame, it was, you know, I thought, I, I remember missing those notes, and I kid you not, they would show up at my mailbox at the Center for the Homeless. Huh. And I have a stack of them. I have That's a stack true. of them. I, I kind of have a, a little file of, of his notes. And um, frankly, one of them is a bit of that story of Judas and Peter, which I've used as a, as a guiding principle for me in that letting go class. So um, just, boy, when you, when you keep your eyes open, there are holy men and women everywhere mm-hmm. amongst us. Yeah. It is that keeping our eyes open and noticing that I think is is critical. You know, we've moved now to you're, you're leaving Notre Dame, which I'm sure felt like a risk at the time. How did you have the courage to take that leap of faith? And, you know, what were some of the early days like at the center? Yeah, <laughs> think about it, like the courage to do it. The fact of the matter is um, there were other opportunities to go down to the center. And I, I, I don't think I was very courageous because I was really comfortable here at Notre Dame and, and didn't want to say yes. And then really, frankly, the grant, which we mentioned was a four-year grant, the grant had come to an end. And that's when I started my own exploration of vocation, right? Lily had charged us to explore vocation as a university, and we did so with faculty, and we did so with staff, and we did so with college students and high school students, and we did so with alums with the Volcari Retreat Program. But I wondered if I had ever explored it. So Mm. when the program was over is when I started my exploration of vocation. And that's when I felt really called to be down at the center. But I was was definitely scared to do it. It was kind of like leaving the cocoon, right? Like I felt like I had um, just, you know, I'd left Notre Dame, but I did ACE. And then I came back to Notre Dame. And then even though I know, you know, obviously Center Homeless is uh, close by, it, it's, it felt like, wow, this is like, I'm, I'm really leaving now. Yeah. And um, I just, I, I think what, what I knew is there was such a great team down there at the center. And once again, sometimes it's just getting out of the way and, uh, and then focusing on what my strengths were. And, and I, what I knew is I was really passionate about this ministry. And uh, I might have had some academic background in studying, right, the, the master's nonprofit, at the time MSA, but the nonprofit administrative program. So I thought, okay, but leaning on the team that was down there and really taking a lot of time to listen to the people who are going through the experience of homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's Father Hesper who said, in a new job, the only thing you should change is your underwear. And so it was really going down there and spending time listening. And I did. I actually was, felt so blessed to have... Uh, I, at one point, I had an office in the library, and of course, we all know Father Hesburgh was on the 13th floor. So, I had many, many occasions to go upstairs and talk to Father Hesburgh and, and visit with Melanie and Father Hesburgh, and um, just so much wisdom up there. And um, so, it was, it was about listening in those early years, and as scared as I was to do some things. And by the way, I'm still scared now for certain things, right? right? You just, I mean, you're constantly making decisions. You you hope you've provided yourself with all the data to make the right decisions. And then sometimes it's following your gut and it's it's always turning to prayer in these decisions and um, hoping, hoping that you made the best decisions. And, and, and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Yeah. As you think back on 16 years plus, how have you changed? How have you been changed by the guests and the relationships yeah. that you've had? Boy, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that 
transformative experience with the letting go class and uh, which again is, is goes along with the uh, the grieving of my dad but you know having had that opportunity to be with the guests and help have them help me with the grieving process having them help me take off my mask because I, I you know you start to feel duplicitous right like you're asking people to to share mm-hmm. to ask for help to be open and then you're not doing it yourself there's just it was just it was incongruous so I was like wait a second here I need to I need to be um, my authentic, genuine self. I mean, after all, this is what the whole vocation exploration was about. It was about taking off your mask. It was about being real, being raw, being genuine, being authentic. And I found no better place to do that with, than with the guests at the center. And they seemed to just accept me for who I am again, warts and all. Right. And so that was that was huge for me. I think that you know as for my family i think having the experience that we all have that we're all part of the center for the homeless i just i I really love that i love that my children um not only know what i do but are part of it Mm -hmm. and i say that too of course aaron as well and i mentioned she ministered to a a homeless agency Mm -hmm. some 20 plus years ago but so it's really a neat thing that we get to all have that experience together Boy, they've they've known so so many guests of the center who've come to be part of our lives and special parts of our lives, and uh, you know some who've passed and some who are still among us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just I do get a little bit sentimental here, even though I'm still at the center, right? Um, and hope to be there for as long as they'll have me. But just the relationships I've made, not only with the guests at the center, but the volunteers, the staff. The friends, donors, everybody who's come in contact, people who tell stories when they were involved at the center before I was there, and just it, it's all part of that center's family, and mm-hmm. it's it's been it's really impacted my life. We, you know, when we were able to put together a veterans facility, that was really powerful to to be part of that experience to help veterans experiencing homelessness. Again, Father Hesburgh blessed our veterans center. Yeah. Um, so it, it's been really a, a special journey that um, if today would be the last day there, it would just be one of the biggest impacts on my life. Sure. I find it ironic that we keep talking about taking off masks and yet we're living in a <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> That's right. That's what? right. Here we are with our masks. What? Yeah. What has this past year plus been like? Homeless wow. ministry in a pandemic. Oh, ministry in a pandemic. Well, first of all, of course, we named an event after it. We named an event Masquerade, and we spelled it M-A-S-K-A-R-A-D-E. And people are like, no, did you mean M-A-S-Q? No, no, no. Masquerade. We're leaning in. Um, well, listen, as you can imagine, early on, when you hear that there's a stay-at-home order, and you're with people experiencing homelessness. Like, those don't go together. Right. You have 200 people under your roof, 50 staff and volunteers. So one of the very first things we did, we put together task forces, you know, so many people did to try to um, to try to approach a virus that you knew nearly nothing about mm-hmm. back in March. And we knew we needed to put a moratorium on volunteers. And unfortunately, that still exists. We are slowly inching back uh, because, you know, today, we everybody's been vaccinated at the center so that has brought us a bit of peace of mind but we are still we're still diligent mask wearers and social distancers and uh hand washers but it did bring us peace of mind but when you had to 
set many of the areas at the center as quarantine spaces, mm-hmm. that became a real challenge. And so we spent, you know, here we go through March, April, May, June, July, August, and no one gets COVID. But we had to have quarantine spaces for men, for women, for veterans, and for families, which actually meant that the numbers of people we were serving ironically was going down because we had to keep these spaces available. Yeah. And then we would find ourselves needing them in September. September was the first time uh, someone at the center tested positive. And then we had what I would say, relatively speaking, was a minor outbreak. I think at one point we had 11 people, which seemed like a lot at the time because it was just, oh, wow, all at once. But then um, I think we've had about 20 people total tested positive. But it was, you know, our programming drastically changed. I mean, we we would meet every Monday night with 200 people. We stopped doing that. And that was where the community gathers. We had groups and groups of volunteers who would come in as they had for years and years and do so many things for us and bring so many items. And that wasn't happening. And we had staff, you know, you had to have staff in the building, but we had some staff who had folks um, in their families who were immunocompromised. And so they had to work from home. We taught our guests had to do a lot of the jobs that we were doing. So it's kind of led to this beautiful thing where now having guests at the front desk and just doing different things in the kitchen that they were already doing and almost being prepared. If no staff were able to come in, the guests needed to run the center. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to step up because we did have a few staff who tested positive. And again, we had staff who weren't able to come in. And so um, it just, it changed everything. And it changed how we delivered our services. But I will say that there are so many amazing agencies in this community, and we have been fortunate to partner with them. And we were all leaning on each other, helping each other. And we were able to get funding to, to get us through a tough year because we weren't able to do any in-person events. Mm-hmm. And so we have three pretty significant in-person events. And we had to adjust to that. And, of course, I mentioned the masquerade, which was a virtual event, and it was a heck of a lot of fun. And, by the way, we're still adjusting because as of right now in 2021, we aren't foreseeing any in-person events. We're really not sure when and if that's going to happen. So we still we still need help um, to keep the doors open, as they say. Mm-hmm. But it's we've, we've learned a lot about our, ourselves, guests and staff included, and uh, the guests are very, very resilient. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, but you've seen that now more than ever. And a lot of the guests actually have stayed through the whole pandemic. And I think it's actually brought a lot of stability where in other times they would, might want to leave. Because, you know, when it started in March, if you're getting a tax refund around April, the weather gets nicer and you've had kind of cabin fever. We, we typically see a lot of people move out at that time. We did not. Mm. We were not seeing anybody moving out. And so I think it actually added stability to their journey and, and through their programming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we've all had to learn how to adjust and be nimble and ask ourselves questions that we'd never asked before. So what, what lessons can we grab from this? even once this is, God willing, all over. I had a personal experience of working at a homeless shelter in Denver as part of the summer service learning program. Uh, Samaritan House is called there, and a lot of similarities I saw between that and, and the Center for the Homeless. But one thing that was a struggle for me as a young undergrad who'd gotten into Notre Dame and you know seen some level of success, I guess, in yeah. life and in early life is success looks different at a homeless shelter and when you're working with those 
experiencing homelessness. Can you give us some insight into that, into how you have measured success, both for yourself, your staff, for the guests at the center? Yeah. Thanks, Dan. You know, thanks for your service to uh, Samaritan and doing an SSLP. I mentioned Aaron was in Colorado Springs. So I pay close attention to Colorado, and I'm on a kind of a newsletter feed. I think Colorado has been a model for a lot of resources for homelessness, whether it's been legislative or tiny homes programming, um, leading some efforts on providing hotel stays for people experiencing homelessness. So I really admire what's happening in Colorado and around many, many other places around the country. Mm-hmm. And so so I, I really appreciate that. Experiencing homelessness during COVID just really amplifies the challenges. And when students at Notre Dame want to volunteer and want to be part of our experience, it's so difficult to say no. And so we've found creative ways um, to engage students and whether it was, you know, fundraising was a big thing. We were just, we were really brutally honest and said, like, if you would like to help, we really need help with fundraising. And, but of course, you want to get to know the people. Uh, and we don't really talk about, you're not, you're serving alongside. We want to be clear about mm-hmm. that. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I've been served just as much as the people living at the center as though you'd say, I serve them. So we're serving alongside of each other. You know, we changed our model from case management to coaching. Because we like to think of coaches sitting next to the guest mm-hmm. and casting a vision for their future rather than, you know, kind of uh, telling someone what to do and managing a case. We're, we're, we're coaching people. We're trying to really help people move along on their journey. And so, you know, when I think of that and when I was a student and, um, you know, maybe the privileges I've, I've had and to give back. But you have to remember, again, in receiving, you have to receive the gifts that are offered to you by the people that you think you're serving because they're (laughs) serving you. And I promise you that. Um, I promise you that. So that's kind of the lens, you know, and I've I've had a great fortune to meet many students who've done SSLP programs at the Center for the Homeless. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, it's about being yourself and not only asking the guests to share their story, you share your story too. Talk about the word suffering a few times today. Well, we know that the word compassion is to suffer with, and that's what being compassionate is, suffering with, sharing your struggles on the journey and hearing other people's struggles, entering into the story and engaging into the, the entirety of the person you're getting to know or the people that you're getting to know. And so we love that we've had SSLP students down at the center. And, I, I you know, we're, we're finding creative ways to do it this summer. Again, we're, we're doing kind of one-time volunteers. We're not just bringing in big groups. So we'll have a couple SSLP students, and and we're excited about that. And, you know, and and some of the SSLP students have have had that similar struggle with what is success and how do we define it? Because, you know, success for a college student, you know, graduating, getting a job, et cetera, et cetera. Well, success, again, using a lens for folks at the center and we talk about different success indicators so Uh someone who came into the center we talked about brokenness if you're broken if you're profoundly disconnected how do you heal that well then you reconnect and when you reconnect you do that through relationships and so if you've come in with broken relationships it's a success when you repair them we've seen families come back together 
We've seen parents reunite with their children. We've seen adults reunite with their families. We've seen couples get back together. It's a huge success. We've seen people come in with health issues and they're able to heal physically. They're able to heal mentally, emotionally. That's success. We've seen people who are able to break their ties of addiction, whatever those addictions may be. That's success. Of course, we've seen people get into housing and their success there. We've seen people just, whatever it is that they came in with their goal to heal, that, that's what their success becomes. And so, yes, our mission is to break the cycle of homelessness, but when you have some of those other success, you start to get at breaking that cycle. But um, it, it, it's a great question to ask, and we just look at success in many different ways. And, and I have to let that be a reminder for me as well. Like, I just, you know, don't want to define success for me as, you know, moving from point A to B, and I'm at this point in my life, and so I should have this much in retirement or I've made this much money. Like, it, no, I, I just... I, I still struggle with changing that narrative of success in my own head, but I'm inspired by the guests when I think of how they have changed the narrative of what success is in their lives. Mm-hmm. It's very inspiring. I do want to ask, you, you know, you have a unique perspective as someone who has worked with the homeless for so many years, but for many others, and a lot of people listening to this podcast, we have a more arm's length Uh, experience with homelessness. And sometimes it really boils down to that dilemma of you're in a midsize or larger city and you're driving around and you see the person on the side of the road or you're walking around downtown and you see someone panhandling down there and you kind of have this struggle between you've got Matthew 25 ringing in your ears and you've also got this, you know, well, there's, are there other ways to, to, donate my money? Are there you know, ways I can help people? Could you give us some insight into how, how, do, you, how do you both personally kind of solve those dilemmas and, and what advice would you give other people who are also feeling that tension? Yeah. First of all, I, I love Matthew 25. So, so <laughs> glad you mentioned that. Um, you know, were, were you there? Essentially, were you there for your neighbor, right? Yeah. Did you feed the hungry? Did you help the homeless? Did you visit the imprisoned? Um, you know, I, I don't feel qualified to answer that question, though many would say I am, because I still struggle with it. And what I, over these years of having been asked somewhat that question along those lines and struggling with an answer, I, I think I just keep coming up with doing whatever you feel you're most comfortable with, whatever you feel your faith drives you to do. If in that moment your faith leads you to pull out a $5 bill or a 20 or a dollar or a loose change, then do it. If you feel called to invite that person for a cup of coffee or give them a gift card or go in and have a bite to eat with them, then do it. I do encourage people to only do it if you feel safe. If you ever feel unsafe, then don't. Mm -hmm. But if you do feel safe and you're going to do it and you want to go down that path, I would say to ask that person what their name is. I would be, that's the first thing I do. I ask what their name is. And then if they're holding a sign, I ask them to tell me a little bit more about that sign. And I actually do this, Dan. I drive around the community and I, 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 I guess maybe I feel comfortable doing it because I do know that um, I know some of the folks and I know that I can offer them a bed at the Center for the Homeless. And um, sadly, so oftentimes, I have not been taken up on the offer to get a bed at the center. And so that tells me there might be some more needs on that sign than just saying they're experiencing homelessness. Right. Maybe they, they need to um, 
Maybe they need food. Maybe they need a place to stay. Maybe they need to feed an addiction. So I don't know what it is, and it's certainly not mine to judge. So what I want to do is, again, we talked about the the entering into and compassion and suffer with. I kind of want to enter into that experience and get to know the person. And and I so I'm one of the people, I feel comfortable saying, hey, can I get your bite to eat, or do you want to go for a bite to eat? Because I just love getting to know people, and so I just want to get to know that person and kind of find out like what makes them tick and who they are and what their journey's been like to bring them to that corner. But a lot of people have different thoughts on it. Do give money, don't give money, approach them, don't approach them. Um, I, you know, I, I, I still struggle with it. Um, I'm not saying I figured it out. But I do think of when um, Pope Francis visited Washington, D.C. several years ago, and he met with people experiencing homelessness at St. Patrick's Church. Mm-hmm. And he prayed with them, and he talked to them about St. Joseph. And he wanted to be with them. And so for me, I, those are the people I want to be with. I, I just I want to get to know them. I want to get to people get to know the people at Center Homeless. I want to get to know the people on the street corner. I'm from New York, and so when I came to South Bend, the idea of people experiencing homelessness or panhandling wasn't foreign to me. Sure. I saw it on many, many, many of my visits to the city. I say the city to New York City <laughs> uh, because I love Chicago and I see it when I go to visit Chicago and and I approach it whether I'm in Chicago whether I'm in New York if I've been in uh, Denver if I've been, you know here in South Bend I approach it all the same way and I want to get to know all those people and learn about their story there have been occasions where I felt a little less safe so I'm certainly a little more distant and there's other times where I feel very safe and that this person would welcome my approaching them. I also don't want to make assumptions uh, that maybe the person I see who might look like they're having a tough experience might not at all. And so it's, that's the other thing. Just I've offered meals, like kind of you, you go out to eat and then you come out with the leftovers, if you will. And like I've offered those. And a couple of times I, I wondered if I offended people because maybe they weren't really in need. So mm-hmm. um, again, the idea of keeping eyes open and, and not making judgments. Well, I think it's, it's you know, just the encouragement to lean into the dilemma, to pray about it, to ask God what to do, and, and to also take encouragement that even supporting wonderful organizations like the Center for the Homeless, and there's a number of others in South Bend and almost any major city, that's another way for people to be part of this fabric of support that um, is, is going to be helpful to people. Yeah, that's that's a better answer than mine, Dan. <laughs> but yeah, no, certainly if you feel like there are great um, agencies in your community that support people going through a hard time, then certainly support them and and refer them to. As I was trying to get to that, but I didn't as eloquently as you. Is that because I have that opportunity to invite them to the center of a homeless? I always travel, uh, you know, with the old business card sure. in my car, and so I don't lead with who I am. I lead with my name. Hey, I'm Steve. What's your name? But then as I hear the journey, I, I say, hey, you know, if you want to go to the Center of Homeless, you know, I work down there and you're welcome to get in my car and we can go down there. But yeah, if there are great resources that your community offers and you want to support them, I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, well, it's it's a special gift that you have in your arsenal and so so glad to, to know that you're doing that. Uh, being a model, really, of holiness, which is our final topic We've touched on a number of people in your own story, but anyone you'd like to uh, highlight once more who's been a model of holiness for you? And then how do you strive after holiness in your own life? Yeah. You know, it's funny. You um, 
when you, we had an email exchange and you said The Pursuit of Holiness, which I love, and then I thought of that movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. Mm-hmm. And the, the person who that story is about in The Pursuit of Happiness is Chris Gardner. We actually had Chris Gardner's son speak at one of our lunches. So I had a chance to meet him and hear a lot of stories and, and you know, in his pursuit of happiness. But when I think of the pursuit of holiness, boy, that just seems a heck of a lot harder for me than a pursuit of happiness because I have days of happiness and, you know, they come and go and this and that. But, like, holiness, that's just, that's deep, that's daunting, um, and it's very worthy of pursuing. And I think before I mentioned models, and of course earlier I mentioned Jeffrey, who uh, I had the wonderful experience getting to know at DCO Hall, it's probably more important. I, I, I frame, I mentioned I kind of resonate with Peter's experience, but, uh, <laughs> and for those people who know me really well, if, if you had to kind of pick a biblical character that I am, and I know it's not your question, but I'm Martha. <laughs> I am Martha, Martha, Martha. Okay. I am distracted. Yeah. I am distracted. I am anxious. And so, you know, Mary's hanging out, listening at the feet of Jesus. That's who I want to be. <laughs> I want to model myself after Mary, but I'm a Martha, and I'm going to be dist- – and Jesus is going to be right there, and I'm going to be scrambling to put out the right food and the right drink and, you know, have the right atmosphere, and I miss the whole point of it. <laughs> and so, I, and, you know, um, I think it's important I say that because I tend to want to model – after the folks that I'm not. Like, I want to aspire to be the Mary who will just just sit and listen with Jesus. I want to just be contemplative. I just want to soak in the joy of Jesus in my life and all the people who exude Jesus and who are Christ-like. Um, so, and there are many, 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 many. But so that's, uh, I think if I take it from, again, that lens that I'm a Martha, I, I want to be anything but Martha because I just, I really just want to sit with Jesus in my life. And I, and I struggle to do it. I just struggle to do it. And so um, I, I look to those folks who, um, who are the sort of quiet, contemplative types. And now, again, the mass thing is I'm, I am who I am. And, I, you know, I, I haven't really been able to change my stripes. So I try to embrace my gifts and recognize what they are. And the way I do that is listening to other people who tell me what my gifts are and then hopefully slowly starting to believe it. it it's hard to sometimes just sit and listen to te- someone telling you, you're good at this and this is your gift. Oh, no, 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 no. But, again, that's also part of the asking for help and receiving it. And so um, I mentioned earlier, of course, my mother. And I think a lot of people would say their mother's the model for them. You know, the family members who are closest to, my wife, my children. I mean, I watch my children grow up, and I'm like, I want to be like them. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents would say that, okay, I know those who are listening are like, come on, they're teenagers. and they're, <laughs> But, boy, we look at our children, and, of course, as we think of the gospel, to become like children. And as I've watched my children grow up, I'm like, man, I want to be more like them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, yeah, so the pursuit of holiness, it's, it's a worthy pursuit and um, have a long way to go on the journey. Don't think I'll ever get there, but um, it, it, it's worth pursuing. And it really is the point of this podcast. I mean, you talked about being vulnerable and being willing to share your story, and we're so appreciative that you've done that in this way through this podcast. And I think what has made this podcast successful, if you will, or, or just, you know, from the people that we've heard from, is that they hear themselves in that, in that 
you know what? I'm on the way. I'm not there, but I'm on the way. And you've shown us that vulnerability and connection. So thank you for that gift. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. You know, as you know, I listen to the podcast, so it's it's like wild that I'm actually on it. I appreciate it because I've just had uh, friends and others. I've listened to their journey and stories and you want to emulate them. And then you do go back to your own story and your own unique self. And we're all called to be beloved and blessed, broken and uh, given. And so thanks for this opportunity to share a little bit of my story and uh, and listen to you and learn from you and, and your journey as well, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. You've given us a lot. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. We invite you to rate us, to follow us on the service of your choosing, and certainly to share this and other stories with others, especially if you think they're in a time of their life that it will be helpful to them. And until next time, we will keep you in our prayers. God bless. Mm-hmm.